0: I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, I'm going to be reading the first 11 verses and then verses 31 through 34, first 11 verses and then 31 through 34. in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And now down to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, Well, welcome to Trinity Church. If this is your first time here or first time in a while, uh, we've been working our way through a sermon series asking the question what do we mean when we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins? And so we've been exploring a rich variety of pictures and images and metaphors. God himself gives us in his word to describe both sin and our interest, especially in the forgiveness of sin. So we've seen things like this. Sometimes sin is a very heavy burden we bear, and God drops that burden like a stone into the depths of the sea. Sometimes sin is pictured as stain, uncleanness, dirt, and filth. God washes it away. Sometimes sin is a barrier between us and God. And God picks up the barrier and He removes it as far from us as the east is from the west. Our sin stands as a reminder, as a testimony against us. God chooses to remember our sin no more. If we move into the world of of finance and money, sin is a great debt we owe to God that's impossible for us to pay. He cancels it. Last Sunday, we saw that debt enslaves us, holds us in its grip. God buys us back. He redeems us. One of the reasons I chose to preach this series, and one of the reasons I chose to preach in that order, is that I suspect most of us, when we think about sin, when we think about forgiveness, our thoughts run quickly, maybe even primarily or exclusively to legal and forensic terminology. We mostly picture our sin as a violation of God's holy law that makes us liable to God's judgment and His wrath, and that condemns us before that holy judge who will eternally destroy us for our sin. That's the language of the legal and the forensic, and I've wanted to at least point out that Scripture is much richer in its description both of sin, but also of the variety of ways God pictures forgiveness. But we must not miss out that a good deal of Scripture speaks of sin in terms of legal categories, and that brings us to Romans chapter 8 this morning. And just a little background back in chapter seven, Paul has been lamenting his frustration, a frustration all Christians seem to have with this struggle, internal struggle with remnants of sin that so often shape the way we live and that we understand to be contrary to God's law. And it's a frustration for us because. We have something of the sense of this present, ongoing power of lingering sin, and we recognize it's altogether inconsistent with the Word of God that gave us life. It's inconsistent with people who have been renewed and made whole by the Spirit of Christ. We know this shouldn't shape us. It shouldn't be a part of our lives as we're united to Christ, and yet... It still clings to us and so there's still this frustration. So chapter 7 ends with that great uh, existential question followed by this great moment of thanksgiving. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then from its opening words to its conclusion, chapter A, draws us in, warms our hearts, reminds us of the great reversal of God's past judgment against us because of Jesus Christ and because of our union with Him wrought about, brought about by our faith and our trust in Him and the Spirit who unites us to Him, who makes Jesus ours and gives to us every benefit and blessing Jesus has earned for us. Chapter 8 reminds us of the restoration of the renewed and right relationship we have with the Father. And this relationship is applied to us in this unbreakable bond we have with Christ by the Spirit who unites us. And this gives us a kind of security and a a joy and a delight as you read through Romans 8, you feel it, you experience it, you rejoice in it. Because, you know, even in the face of suffering, even in the face of trial and temptation, and even in the face of ongoing persistent sin in your life, where you otherwise have feelings of guilt, where you feel like you fall short of God's glory, of His righteous, holy standard, He's going to be telling you, as I will today, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for you. Sin will sometimes leave you feeling down and defeated, discouraged. There it is again. It seems to have gained the upper hand again. And Romans 8 and the rest of the Bible, we're being told, Christ has paid that penalty of sin. And He's broken the power of sin And the same spirit who raised him from the dead in confirmation of his having paid the penalty, that same spirit is in us fighting for us and with us. And so our standing before God is never more secure. The outcome is never in doubt. And the spirit who gives us life and peace assures us this morning there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So once again, Paul's inviting us into the world of the legal and the courtroom. Notice there is no condemnation. Both in verse 1 and again in verses 33 and 34, Paul asserts and he affirms that our sin means we have a court date. And if you ever get caught up in the criminal justice system, having a court date is something that looms and hangs over you. But the outcome of this court process is not what we might have imagined, and it is certainly not what we deserve But let me draw you in even more. Our sin, in Paul's view here, our sin is a violation of God's law. It makes us liable to receive God's judgment. And forgiveness has something to do with the reversing of that judgment so that we're no longer under God's condemnation. Our sin brings us into God's courtroom. It's a violation of God's law. It's contrary to his commands. Either we've done something he has forbidden or we've left undone, we've not done something he commands. And so we find ourselves standing before him, the accused. We're standing before a righteous and holy lawgiver, and judge. And we stand under the weight of a multi-count indictment. There on the table is a mountain of evidence stacked up against us. There's a lineup of witnesses going out the door who are prepared to testify against us. And the outcome seems never to be in doubt. There's no chance we can escape. God, the judge, will uncover the facts that were never really covered to him. He will apply the law. It's his law. There's no question in his mind of the intent of his law or any kind of loopholes in the law. He gave it, it's perfect. He's the one applying it. He will weigh the evidence and he will render his verdict and he will find us guilty. He will condemn us to death and then carry out that sentence on us all because of our sin. That's what you'd expect to happen as you walk into the courtroom of God as a sinner. And yet verse 1 tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verses 33 and 34 invite us to imagine someone standing in that long line of witnesses or maybe coming through the prosecutor's door, someone who might dare to enter into God's courtroom after our case has been heard and settled to say, oh, there's one more. But have you heard about, do you know she does, to bring an additional charge against God's elect? some other accusation, some other attempt at condemnation. Paul, God says to us, there's no one. There is no one who could possibly dare enter into the courtroom and justifiably bring another accusation. It is God who justifies us. That is, he sits on the throne as the judge interpreting and applying his own perfect law against sinners who have broken it at every turn. He's the one who takes full account of, full stock of our sin, who renders a verdict against it, who pronounces a punishment for it, except because he has loved us and because he chose us in Christ and because of Uh, He considers us to be in Christ. He renders the verdict. He pronounces the judgment. He administers the punishment on his son who stands in your place. He does not, did not spare him, but he delivered him up for us all. Our verdict of guilty is pronounced on the innocent one on the righteous one the punishment we deserved is poured out on him at the cross he is condemned along with those two men on either side of him and all the righteousness Christ performed and accomplished in his perfect obedience throughout his entire life that makes him and makes the crucifixion altogether in our eyes to be the most unjust sacrifice or the unjust punishment. All that is applied to us. The righteousness Christ performed, the righteousness Christ lived, becomes ours. So we're not simply entered in the courtroom and given a verdict of not guilty and walking away breathing a great sigh of relief. As if somehow God overlooked something or didn't see something or we got away with it. He doesn't just restore us to a baseline level of not guilty. But because he put that on Jesus and puts the righteousness of Christ on us, we're not only not guilty, but we're perfectly righteous. And Paul reminds us that we are justified in Christ. That is, the guilt of our sin is done away with in His death and resurrection. We are declared righteous as if we had lived that perfect life Jesus lived, as if we had paid the perfect price Jesus paid. And all because the Father is satisfied that His judgment, His wrath, the penalty for sin, has been doled out, meted out, met by Jesus. So we might be tempted to ask, is this forgiveness once? Is this what we do at the beginning of our Christian life? Or is this something God gives us regularly and in an ongoing way? You see, because chapter 7 had reminded us that we continue to sin. We know this to be true. And we might imagine that when we look at our imperfect obedience we might still in some way be liable to condemnation and judgment yes i know god has rescued me and has acquitted me and even declares me righteous in christ but that was you know back when i was in sixth grade or seventh grade or when i was five or when i was 15 what about yesterday What about this morning Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To belong to Christ, to be in union and solidarity with him means you share in his death and resurrection. And this is the good news Paul will continue to develop here and throughout the rest of the chapter. The good news is by extension, Jesus Christ has freed us from the guilt of sin. He's freed us from the penalty of sin. And he has freed us in some way from the power of sin. He's broken that power. Paul describes the the two kinds of ways of living. Living according to the flesh, living according to the Spirit. And we sometimes read this as if this is a, a competition between two equal ultimates. As if we're uh, it's a 50-50 chance, or, or we, we're not quite sure where we're going to end up, but he's reminding us that the same Spirit of Christ who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies. Living according to the flesh is, is that self-absorbed and self-reliant and self-indulgent life. It's hostile to God. We cannot submit to God's law. We Don't please God. But he says, that's not who you are. You live life in the Spirit. You have Christ. And as you have Christ, you have His Spirit. So the flesh is no longer that dominating principle in your lives. Rather, you submit to the Spirit who is at work in you, powerfully renovating you, who leads you into battle and gives you victory, and who reminds you that even in those moments of failure you still have a savior the law paul says was powerless to change you it was powerless to conform you into the image of christ it's powerless to change you from within you remember the old testament prophets who predict and pray for god to write that law on our hearts. and This is what the Spirit does as he has already empowered Christ to fulfill all the demands of the law, to obey perfectly, and now enables us to new obedience. Even when we find those little pockets and parts of our lives that are not entirely yielded over to the power of the Spirit who is at work and operative in us. Because we belong to Jesus, because God the Father has accepted his perfect sacrifice, there is still no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit who was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead lives in you. The same Father will raise you up by the same Spirit based on and rooted in the merits of Christ in His own resurrection for you. And this even reaches us. It's not just future. It reaches us in the present. He gives life to your mortal body. Not your dead body, your mortal dying body. You have that life already now. You have that life in Christ and it's going to be fully realized when he comes back. The same spirit of Christ, the same spirit who energized Jesus energizes you. And so once again, you can live your life and look back on your week or your day or your morning or the last five minutes and and feel guilty. You can have or imagine a parade of witnesses that will include Satan, someone you know, maybe even your own conscience, who would want to accuse you before God that you're still a sinner. And God is going to say, bring them on. Who would dare enter my courtroom and bring a charge against you? This one, mine. No condemnation. Because God has justified. It doesn't belong to someone else to determine whether or not you are justified. God justifies who can condemn. And it gets even better, really, because as Paul wraps this up, he reminds us of what Jesus is presently doing. And you have that picture of the Old Testament priest who walks into the most holy place with the blood and with the incense. The incense both to cloud or to to provide us a, a barrier, but also to represent the prayers of God's people. And the blood, of course, to represent the sacrifice, to cover, to pay for the sin. And now Paul says, Jesus, whose sacrifice was once and for all time perfect and perfectly received, satisfies our guilt, takes care of it, deals with it. That Jesus has ascended. And he's in the most holy place, the place that was the model for what the Israelites had. He's in the ultimate presence of God and he comes in our flesh In the body and in the blood in which he lived his perfect life. In the body and the blood in which he hung on the cross. In the body and in the flesh and the blood he rose from the dead. And he presents himself to the Father. And he abides in the presence of the Father. He comes into that divine judgment hall. And his father welcomes him, receives him, delights in him. He is the perfect, the finished sacrifice who has satisfied the wrath of God for all our sin. And now Paul goes on to say, in this ongoing perpetual way, this one stands in the presence of the father having paid the penalty and he prays for us. He prays that the same Spirit who animated him in the grave would animate us, would empower us. He prays that in our suffering, in our temptation, in our slippage, the Spirit would empower us, would remind us even that there really is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And His intercession is unique to each of us according to our needs, a perpetual reminder to the Father that the sacrifice has been paid, that we are accepted in God's sight, and that we will have everything we need to finish this race and to see that God's purposes in us are met and fulfilled. So you might ask a friend to pray for you in times of trouble. And your friend might actually pray for you. Or your friend might forget. Or your friend might pray with incomplete sentences and in pondering how even to pray for you, not knowing how to match your circumstances, which seem even a little cloudy to them, and God's perfect will, which is not revealed to us. And here you have Jesus. Jesus, in in the perfect line of sight of his Father, who knows you deeply, profoundly, your greatest needs, your moments of weakness, your areas of struggle, the temptations that are, again, unique to you. And he knows those moments where you've sinned. Not just in the abstract, but with real specificity. Jesus, who was condemned in your place for your sin. Not sin in the abstract, but sin in the real concrete. With specificity. The indictment written up against you with its long list was applied to him. He stood there guiltless and spotless until he took on himself your sin. He submitted himself to the judgment of his father when there was no sin in him except as it was applied to him your sin. He heard the verdict even though Pilate would wash his hands and say, there is no guilt in this man. When the Father looked at him, there was. It was yours, but it was there. He stood condemned in your place. And that thief on the cross was a good theologian. He said to his friend on the other side, you know we are getting what we deserve. But him... He's done nothing. Jesus entered the courtroom, left it as a condemned, guilty man brought outside of the city to face his condemnation, judgment, and his death. The ultimate penalty, the price for sin. And having satisfied the Father's wrath, God the Father raised him from the dead. He emerged from death on the other side victorious. And he now stands in the presence of the Father and prays for you, intimately knowing your needs, having experienced your suffering, and knowing the perfect will of God the Father for you and having available to him the perfect and powerful resource of the Holy Spirit whom he's given to you, and by whom you are united to Christ. Sin is dirt that gets washed. Sin is a burden that gets dropped into the sea. Sin, God forgets. Sin he removes from you as far as the east is from the west. But there's something really rich about the legal forensic imagery, isn't there? You're brought into a courtroom. And because of Christ, you're not guilty. There is no condemnation. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. There's no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God justifies who is to condemn Christ Jesus died, was raised, is at the right hand of the Father, and is interceding for you. Let's pray. Lord, help us to embrace and enjoy the forgiveness you give us in Christ. Thank you for the rich and variety of imagery. Thank you for this one. Lord, we marvel At your perfect plan, and at the great cost to our Savior, who could have, as we often do, said, "It's not my fault," and yet you found fault with Him, and you sent Him to pay the ultimate price that we and Him might live forevermore. Thank you. Receive our thanks that we offered in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, Amen.